0: Well, it's less than a month until Feast of Trumpets. I guess that's why we're starting to get sermonettes about the feast. It starts to get exciting. Some of the girls, ladies were over at the house the other day planning uh, for meals and purchase of meat and various things. So you start hearing this and -and so-and-so staying such-and-such a place and it begins to get exciting to know that it's drawing near and preparations are being made. However, in spite of the excitement and the anticipation and the joy that is ahead of us, Nelson was complaining yesterday about feeling really old and tired and he didn't have any energy. And uh, I noticed today a, a pattern. He started out with a song leading and every song he chose was over 100, number in the book. And I thought maybe he's feeling his age. But this last one, though, was 96. He broke that. All right, the last couple of weeks I've done a bit of review of our purpose and how we wound up here where we are and why we're having the feast here and why we feel that this is a center of where God is going to be doing some things here in the end. And I want to continue along those lines only to go forward a little bit into tomorrow instead of yesterday. Uh, You will recall from the last couple of weeks that I reviewed some scriptures as to why we should be leaving the cities and going and dwelling in the fields and gathering ourselves together as we see these things beginning to come to pass and that there are scriptures which indicate that that is to be the case. And if you read articles on the internet or elsewhere about preparedness, people who have no connection to God and God's church are saying the same things. It's time to get away from the centers of destruction and those areas where population is dense, uh, dense in more ways than one, and are easier controlled, are easier taken into captivity, and so on, and less food and water and everything else will be available when this thing finally comes down. So we find that God, in His Word, foretold these things long, long ago, and now only those who are not watching their televisions all the time and are beginning to wake up and see it at the door are beginning to warn people. However, it is almost too late. But God had these scriptures in here long, long ago for those who would have ears to hear and eyes to see and who are willing to listen. So, God prepares way ahead of time. He knows exactly what's coming down. He knows precisely when it will be. He has a plan in place. And he let us know enough ahead of time that we had time to digest the information and to begin to come out and form a community to be prepared for those others whom God says he will bring because he has also told us he's not bringing just a little group like us together He is going to bring roughly 10%, or more like 9%, perhaps, a small tide, he says in Isaiah 1, together at the end time. Now, we reviewed briefly Zephaniah last time, chapter 1, about the great financial crash that is coming, and that is becoming more and more obvious as time goes on, even since last week. We've had some bank failures and near bank failures, more countries or companies going under, uh, mortgage companies in trouble, a run started on one of the largest banks in Britain on Friday, uh, Thursday I guess and Friday, and they were contemplating even closing some of them and cutting back the hours to that bank uh, today and on Monday, because there is a panic started and people are lined up around the block and down the next block trying to get in and get their money out. Uh, Shades of the Great Depression. So it's beginning to hit here and there. And as people see that on the news, and as they can view people lined up for blocks trying to get their money out, it's going to create a certain uneasiness. And more and more people will do that. Our own government now, Uh, or the Federal Reserve, which actually (laughs) controls the government through finance and is a private institution of banking, is caught between a rock and a hard place. They want to continue to milk you and me and get all they can out of us and add to the trillions that they already have. However, they've worked themselves into a situation where the economy is beginning to collapse around us They want to lower the interest rate so that they can free money up and begin printing more money and making money electronically to keep the cash flowing so Americans can keep buying on credit uh, and keep the world economy moving and to keep it from crashing here. So it is anticipated they will drop the interest rates uh, this coming week or whenever their meeting is very very shortly now. But what that will do then, even though it will make it easier to borrow money again now that it's become tight and they'll print a whole bunch more of it to make it available, that's going to create incredible inflation. Already corn has gone up three times its price. Wheat is now at record levels at over $9 a bushel. And everything is going to go up as a result. You're going to see food prices escalate terribly in the next months ahead. Now, while that may give us a short respite, what does it do to the dollar? Lowering the interest rates makes it go down in value, and countries like China and Japan who have been buying U.S. Treasury bonds will begin to look elsewhere because they can get a higher return on their money in interest, plus the euro is going up, the yen is going up, other currencies are going up against the dollar. In other words, the dollar is sliding into oblivion and will not be able, and its purchasing power is going away. So not only will they have less interest on the money they have in America, the dollar is devaluing at the same time because of inflation. So it's a two-edged sword. If you create inflation to try to salvage it for a while, the dollar tanks, or if you cut back on credit, then... Uh, everything dries up and stops. So they're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. And God says they're damned. And then it's going to come apart. We can see it cracking right now. We can see it beginning to lean outward. Now, I review that a little bit again, because in the second chapter of Zephaniah, it does say to gather yourselves together, you that are humble and meek and willing to obey God, and to seek him, and maybe you'll be hid from this. Then he says that this whole evil society, including the church, is going to go down, and God is going to save out a very few a small and humble folk, he says in chapter 3, verse 12. I will leave in the midst of you an afflicted and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the eternal. A few people will trust in God. And he is the only one who can save. Now, I review that again because it comes just before the book of Haggai. Now, the book of Haggai is the first place we went back in February of 1996, right after this information began to come out about the church and about what has to be done, how worldwide woodfall and how a new ladder temple has to be built. And the book of Haggai explains that, and I want to briefly review part of that today to get where we're going to show what is about to happen and how it must come to pass and who God will use to do it. And will you and I be included? That is a question that needs to be answered. I want to know if I'm going to be included, and I think you want to know if you will be. Will you be with this world and take the medicine it's about to get? or you be with God and be protected by him and be a part of his work. It has to be one way or the other. Right now, you can be connected with God's church. Right now, you can be warming a chair. Right now, you can be playing Christian. You can be playing church. And... Supposedly getting away with it. There is coming a point where God will no longer tolerate that. There is coming a point when you can no longer do that. We have to be sincerely, from the heart, doing everything we can to depart from Babylon and turn to God and his ways. And he is going to make a separation. Let's pick it up in the book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and the first day of the month, now historically, again to set the, or for the setting, uh, the Jews had been in captivity, Jerusalem having been destroyed, for approximately 70 years. And Babylon was the reigning empire of the world. Then the Persians, the Medes and Persians, combined and went in and destroyed Babylon by, sne- by diverting the river and sneaking in under where the river channel, coming into the city and taking it overnight. Now we read in Revelation 17 and 18 that the destruction of the modern-day leader of Babylon will occur in one hour or one day, a very short time. Uh, Isaiah says, suddenly... Uh, There are many scriptures that indicate that it is going to be a very short battle. The United States is not going to stand for 10 or 15 years in a fight. We will go down as ancient Babylon went down, virtually overnight when it happens. Now, the second year of Darius, sometime after the 70 years had finished, something happened where probably Daniel went to Cyrus and says don't you know that you're mentioned back in Isaiah 44 and 45 and that you're supposed to help God's people so Darius said wow I'm in the scriptures of the Jews of the Israelites didn't know that and this probably pleased him and pricked his ego and vanity quite a bit so he was willing to listen so so Haggai addresses the people in the second year of Darius the king. We'll get a little more detail on what I just said here in a few moments. In the first day of the month, the sixth month, came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest. So the civil leader, or Zerubbabel, which is typified by Moses in Scripture, and of Joshua... Uh, the son of Josedek, the high priest, typified by Aaron, by Elijah, by others, uh, as in Malachi 4 and as in Luke and other places. John the Baptist as well. came to those who would be the leaders at the end time. Now, I say that, and some of you who do not have the background might not understand this, but it's really easy to go to Zechariah 4, I think it's verse 14, I believe, where it talks about the two olive branches and who they are and those are the two anointed ones it says and the only other place that is mentioned in the Bible is Revelation 11 speaking of those two anointed at the end to lead the end time church so it's talking here to the two witnesses of God at the end time has nothing to do except historically with that original story that was only a type of what is coming down today the 70 years is also mentioned in Zechariah 1, uh, as having, and in the context of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the end-time witnesses of God against the world. So this is speaking to the end-time church, okay? Verse 2, Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that the Eternal's house should be built. Now, this is talking about church people, This isn't talking about the Jews in Jerusalem or anyone else. This is talking to the two witnesses and the people who will listen to them at the end. Now, at this point, the remnant has not been gathered together. These two men will come on the scene. They will be joined together at some point, and they will have as their job to build the end-time church. That is echoed in Zechariah 4, which in Zechariah began to be written halfway through the book of Haggai. But people will say, this isn't the time to build the house of God, the church of God. Then came the word of the Eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying, all right, now God is is going to tell them that you say it isn't time to build a house for God. But, listen, Haggai wrote the words of God. Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your fine homes, and this house lie waste? In this country, we've lived in fine homes, and in the last 10, 15 years, boy, have they built fine homes. Bigger and bigger and more amenities, Fine, fancy homes that only the very, very wealthy would have lived in, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago when the average person was living in a little cracker box built in a subdivision that, uh, you know, maybe 800 square feet or something. Not anymore. Now, tie this in a little bit with him saying that we must leave the cities and go dwell In the field, in in, uh, Micah 4. Is it time for us to stay in the cities and our McMansions, as most of the churches of God are doing today, and God's house lie waste? And yet they're saying it isn't time to build a house. They think they've already built the house, most of them, whether it be United or Living or whatever the group, they've already built it. We can't say that. We have a very small group of people, both here and scattered around the country and a few other parts of the world, not very many anymore, who recognize that God says this has to be done. But this is by no means 10% of what was the church of God. By no means. We're not even a hundredth of it or a thousandth of it. But he's posing the question, is it time to go ahead and live as you have lived? Now, didn't we read in Luke 21 that we are to look at the signs of the end, and that we're not to go on with life as usual, eating and drinking and partying and saying the Lord delays His coming, because it seems far off somehow, even though it's nearer. Doesn't it say that we're to leave father, mother, brother, sister, husband or wife, lands, houses, and so on to serve the eternal? Christ didn't say that in vain. That was a prophecy of a time coming when his people would have to leave their families and their homes, their land, their farms, whatever they had, and come to serve God in the way that he wants to be served. And the specific purpose for that is to build his temple. He has a reason for us leaving. It's not just to protect ourselves or to get away from the city because that's where trouble is coming. Now, even the world will start telling you it's time to get away from those centers of population because trouble is coming. So God isn't saying these things just for us to save ourselves. He's saying it because he has a purpose. Is it time for us to go on with life as usual in our fine American economy while his house lies waste? Now, his house lies waste both spiritually and that the church has been desecrated, decimated, torn apart, and physically, in the sense that the building that was built as a monument to God, built in the name of God, has been turned over to the world. All the buildings that we built in Big Sandy and in Brickett Wood have been turned over to the world. There is nothing left, physically and precious little spiritually, of the church of God anymore. So he says, is it time for you to go on, life as usual, when my house lies waste?" And the obvious answer to that, or he wouldn't have asked the question, is no. No, it's not time for you to do that. He goes on. Now, therefore, thus says the Eternal of Hosts. He's speaking here in great formal officialdom. Not just God says, but says the Lord of Hosts. A very powerful title of God. Consider your way. You have sown much, we've worked hard in this country, haven't we? And bring in little. Right now, the average American worker is making much less in terms of spending power than he was making 30, 40, 50 years ago. Minimum wage is higher, wages are higher, but inflation has gone on faster than wages have risen. And therefore, you are making less today than you were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Less in spending capacity. So you've sold much, and you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. Most people are not satisfied, and we eat more and more. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. can't get enough. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. You get your take-home pay, you stop at the grocery store, you buy food and drink, and you complain that, used to, I could buy several sacks full of groceries for $100, now I can pick it up with one hand just about in little plastic bags and take it to the car. So you can buy it, but there's nothing there. And it seems like the money just disappears. It's just gone. Where did it go? Thus says the eternal of hosts. He says it again, repeats it. Consider your ways. There is a reason, there is cause and effect for the circumstances we find ourselves in as a church, spiritually and the plight we find ourselves economically in this nation. So he's describing this period of time right now when they're about to start inflating the money supply in order to try to keep things going for a little while longer. But at the same time, other countries are going to see the dollar devaluing. And you know the only reason they haven't pulled their money out now and traded dollars for euros and made a big stack of dollars over here that nobody wants and won't buy anything Is because they realize when they start doing that, they're going to lose more and more of their investment because every dollar they pull out is going to make the next next dollar worth less. So they know they'd be cutting off their nose to spite their face if they destroy America. So they're trying to, even they are buying U.S. Treasury bonds at the rate of several billion a month in order to keep us afloat while they try to figure out a way to extract their value out of this country before the dollar completely crashes. Otherwise, they would have already done it because they hate our living guts, to put it mildly. Consider your ways. Think about how you're living. That could be... And he's addressing this basically to the church. He's not addressing it to the world. This is written to the two witnesses and those people that will be gathered to them, is who this is being written to. And he tells the people in the church to consider their ways. Are we drifting more back to the world? You know, when we first came together we said boy we need to cut back tv be careful what we watch we need to cut back on radio be careful what kind of music we watch we need to be very careful about how we live and not look and act like babylon but then over time you slip back slowly into watching more tv and listening to different music on the radio and then we begin to see eye paint and hair tint and various things beginning to creep back in don't we because we start sliding back to the world if we do not stay alert and awake and take heed and look less like the world and more like God wants us to look. Because he said, see no evil and hear no evil in Isaiah. And he meant it. And we let the Internet and the games creep in more and more and more. I read an article last night that said, watching TV with young children, actually changes their brain and rewires it. A brain that normally would learn to read and to write and to think is reprogrammed and rewired by television so that they become less literate instead of more. And that even the so-called educational channels for children are designed in such a way that they have loud noises coming in and things that flash on and flash off and it's rapid fire and the brain does not learn to think. And then we start seeing more attention deficit disorder and various other maladies of the brain and the nervous system in our children because of what they saw and heard early in life. I don't care what genre of music you choose to listen to, whether it be rock or country or rhythm and blues or whatever, unless it's classical or something, there are going to be songs there about adultery and fornication and drunkenness and lying and cheating and stealing. We're going to listen to those. That's evil. That's hearing evil and seeing evil. I'm not saying you can't ever turn on the radio. But how quick are we to turn it off if the theme of the song is simple? It doesn't matter what music it is, what radio station you're on. They all have it. Do we weed it out? Do we stop it? God says we should consider our ways. We need to think about things. How much are we departing from this world, and how much do we look a whole lot like it? He says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. Now, when I first began to understand Haggai, I thought, well, this is probably uh, metaphorical and that we're certainly to build a house but it's to be a spiritual house and spiritual house the spiritual house of course is more important in the temple of our bodies and so on than is a physical temple but of late I've begun to wonder if God does not want both a spiritual and a physical house built and we'll get into some of that either today or probably next week, and consider some possibilities. We are at a time when there's about to be a financial crash. If Zephaniah and Haggai are sequential in order, uh, time order, then the crash will occur before the latter temple is put together. If that is the case, and the physical building has to be built, the modern building materials we go to Home Depot and Lowe's and other places to buy today may not be available. And if God indeed intends to have a physical building built, and I'll give you some reasons a little later on as to why that might be, then we may have to go to some nearby mountains and literally bring wood and build a house. It's possible our understanding is beginning to increase somewhat. Now, I think it is important that we understood the spiritual first, because that is by far the most important. But these other things may go with it. I'll stop with that thought right there for the moment, and we'll pick it up more when we get to some information that may add to it. Bring wood and build a house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. So God is going to work with a people who are willing to do what He says. They're willing to consider their ways and change the way they're thinking and acting. They're willing to understand that this world and its society and its system of money isn't any good and is going to go away. So they'll be willing to leave everything, basically, that they have and have had and go to do God's bidding and his will. And trust him in faith that he will take care of them. Isaiah 55 says, come, have wine and milk without money. God is going to make it so that he will provide for his people when the money of this world fails. Christ said you cannot serve God and mammon. And there is coming a time when he is going to make a sharp demarcation between the two. And you will either go the way of this world and accept the mark of the beast so that you can buy and sell in the new world order, or you will go God's way and depend upon him in faith to take care of you. Meantime, our nation in Israel, and that's what Zephaniah 1 is talking about, is Israel, the peoples of Israel today are going to go into a financial crash. In the meantime, the New World Order is going to come up with a new system that they say will work, and everybody's going to jump on the bandwagon. Except you and me, and a few others. Ten percent of what originally was worldwide. All right, he says, you look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, says the eternal Hosts. even that which you earned, speaking to church people, God says, I blow it away. Remember, God characterizes himself as our enemy in many of the prophecies right here at the end until we repent and are forgiven and he turns his face to us. Until then, he considers us enemies. Why? Because we look and act too much like the world. And the world is the enemy of God. So God says, even you in the church, I'm going to blow up on what you do. You're going to try to work. You're going to try to get ahead. You're going to try to do this and try to do that and try to make money. And it's not going to happen. Drought, famine, floods, bank uproars, whatever. God says, I'm not going to let it happen. Why? For our good. So that we'll learn to repent and be humble and serve him instead of serving this world and its system and its ways. He has to teach us. Because we're not going to learn on our own. So God says, bring it home and I'll blow it away. And when he blows, things happen. Why, says the Eternal of Hosts. He answers the question, because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. We're putting ourselves ahead of God, is what it amounts to. In the end time, including the church, and maybe even including us, some of us have left our lands and our homes, we're trying to obey this, And yet still, we don't have every blessing, do we? And we don't have God having turned his face to us in a way that we are taken care of completely apart from the world. See, he tells us in Isaiah 52 to sit up and quit being walked on and break the bands of the world. Now that puts the emphasis on us doing something about it. Now he does say in other places that if we will do our part then he will turn and do his part. But he expects something from us before he will act and help us. He is not going to give us all these blessings that we have read about in Isaiah and other places unless and until we have shown him that we love him more than we love this world and the things in it and the ways of it. And that we are willing however feebly, to try to break those bands and to quit laying down and being walked over by this world of materiality and its gimmicks and goo-goos that we don't need and buy anyway, and the world of fashion, and the world of on and on it goes, to try to look good physically instead of working at looking good spiritually to God. Oh, we get so concerned about how we might be aging. We look so concerned about whether we might get looked at in town. We look so concerned, or get so concerned about the physical. And the physical means nothing. How do we look to God? Does he see fake? Does he see false? Does he see reality? Or does he see people who are trying to look like, the world and when they go to town not look at all different from the world. Are we hypocrites? Do we dress and act one way here and dress and act differently when we go to town? Why would we do that? Because we want to look good to the world. It's it's an attitude I'm talking about here, a mindset because we still too much are like and of the world. And God says, Come out of her, my people. Therefore the heaven over you stayed from dew, the earth is stayed from her fruit, and I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground brings forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. Now we said spiritually this was speaking to the church and how it would be destroyed. And I have always preached the last 12 years that it would then happen to the country. And now we have record droughts and record floods, almost anywhere you want to look, and the crops are being cut back, and now we're beginning to have drought, man-made drought with ethanol as well as actual drought from weather. And food is going to become very, very scarce and very, very expensive. So God is bringing these things to pass. I'm not preaching prophecy here anymore. I'm preaching history, believe it or not. Things that were being preached prophetically 11, 12 years ago now are becoming history. That should make every nerve in us tingle to realize it is happening this fast. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Josedech the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the eternal their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the eternal their God had sent him and the people did fear before the eternal. They feared God. Do we fear aging more than we fear God? Do we fear poverty more than we fear being a thief? Do we fear God more than the ways of this world? Do we take pleasure in God more than in the pleasures of this world? He wants to know. He needs to know. We're going to survive it. It's going to be because He protects us, not because we're just so wonderful. And if we look like the world, we'll be treated like the world. If we act like the world, we'll be treated like the world. Just the way it is, cause and effect. So those who obeyed feared God. Then spoke Haggai the Eternal's messenger and the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Eternal. Those who fear and obey, God will be with. Okay? That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. I am with you, says the Eternal. And the eternal stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, or son of the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the eternal of hosts, their God. The four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So the remnant responded. They feared. They obeyed. They came. They began to build. And then, a little later, came another message through Haggai to the residue of the people as well as the leaders. Verse 3, Who is left among you, chapter 2, but saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Now, we looked upon this as a spiritual house, and certainly, if our spirituality does not eclipse and surpass that which we were in worldwide, then the latter temple cannot surpass in glory the former temple. We are not here to rebuild worldwide, even though there are churches named the Church of God Restored, or the restored Church of God. Restored to what? Restored to that which God blew apart. That doesn't do you any good. We have to go way above and beyond what we were. Now, it's easy to say, well, what do you mean? Because we can think of jet airplanes and Herbert Armstrong and various things. No, let's draw it down tighter than that. I have to overcome and be a whole lot different than I was in Worldwide Church of God. It comes down to an individual matter. Forget about all the physical things and the sermons and preaching we heard and what level they were. Take it right down to the building blocks of the temple. They're individual. Each of us is a temple or a building block of the temple of God. So I have to look back, painful as it may be, to what I was in worldwide. I need to think about that. Meditate on that and see what needs to be changed so that I might fear God and obey God a whole lot better than I did then. It is an individual responsibility that we must all participate in, in order to become what God wants us to be. Well, what God is going to build with those who will fear and obey Him, is going to be compared with what was. And it will be, what was, will be as nothing. Now, if we are going to consider that there has to be a physical building built as well as a spiritual building built, maybe even it has to surpass in glory that which was before. Ooh. Are you ready to build a building? that will surpass the auditorium in Pasadena. How could we do that? How? Just a thought, just a question. Don't know for sure that this will have to be done. But if it is a spiritual analogy and a physical analogy, then they both have to be more resplendent. Okay? Something has to happen to make that possible, because you and I could dig and find every last penny we've got, and 10% of God's people could come here with every last penny they've got, and we still couldn't build a building with that money in today's economy that was built in Pasadena. Couldn't do it and way conditions are in the market right now probably couldn't even begin to borrow the money to do it I don't remember now what that building cost but that's been a lot of years ago and a car then cost about four or five thousand dollars now they're thirty and forty thousand dollars ten times so how many ever millions it took to build that building multiply it by ten and you get an idea of what building the same building would cost today Verse 4, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the eternal, and work. We're here to build a spiritual temple, possibly a physical one, and he says be strong and work. You think we're sitting here doing nothing right now, brethren? How much are we working every day to be spiritually superior to what we were and were as individuals. Now, I know it's easy to look at someone else and use them as a justification for not facing our own problems and making the changes we make. We can justify being what we are based on seeing other people's problems. And many times we use that excuse, don't we? Well, so-and-so does such and such. Well, so-and-so may do such and such. But that does not excuse you from doing what you need to be doing. That is a lame excuse. So-and-so is not our basis of comparison. In fact, God tells us very clearly that comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise. Let's say I have a problem, or Gordon has a problem, or Nelson has a problem, those who are called elders or ordained here in this congregation, and we aren't perfect. I know that kind of blows you away to consider that, but consider it for a moment. We may not be perfect. We may have problems. We may have faults. We may have weaknesses. I think I could say we do. Now, can you use that as an excuse for continuing to have your weaknesses? No. You can't point the finger and blame, because who is our standard? Is it Gordon? Is it Nelson? Is it me? God forbid we'll never get anywhere if that's the case. It's Jesus Christ or Emmanuel is our standard. Now, if you can find a weakness or a problem with him, then you have an excuse or a justification in saying, well, Emmanuel has this problem, therefore, why should I work at overcoming and growing? If you can find a weakness or a problem with God the Father, then I'll agree, you've got a justification for not overcoming. But if you find a fault and a weakness in me or any other person around here, And say, wow, you do such and such, so why are you pointing a finger at me? No, you can't use that justification. You can't use that excuse. You might as well get over that kind of thinking. Because it won't work with God. He's going to say, did I ever say you were to be like Herbert Armstrong or Daryl Henson or Rod Meredith? No, he never said that. He said, you have to be like me. But if you're in that way of thinking, it's easy for you not to overcome. It's easy to be in denial because it's so easy to see other people's problems, isn't it? It's so easy to accept that they are less than perfect, and therefore it is easy for you to deny that you are less than than perfect. So we have spiritual denial. I'm thankful. God does not want us to reach perfection by you comparing yourself to me. You'd never get perfect. You'd never get mature. You have to look up. There's the standard. There's the one we look to, the one we compare ourselves with. I will answer to God. You will answer to God. And if you go before him and say, yeah, but so-and-so did such and such, he just laugh. It cuts no ice with him. He says, yeah, but you didn't fear and obey me. Well, why can't I do this? So-and-so does. Well, all right, be a so-and-so then. But God says, be God, not a so-and-so. Don't be like so-and-so, be like me. What somebody else does is no excuse. What somebody else, what are you doing? When you use that thinking, you're lowering the standard for everyone. If so-and-so does such-and-such, then that's good enough for me. That's as good as I'm going to... That person there, and you're pointing at their problems, and you say, that's as good as I'm going to be. Is that as good as you want to be? That's the person you're running down by saying, if they don't do it, why should I? You're running them down, and at the same time, you're lowering yourself to that level. You're cutting your own throat using that kind of thinking. It doesn't say here that those people who looked around and decided I'm as good as anybody here, so why should I overcome, are included in this. The ones that build the temple of God are going to look around and see that they are not like Christ, And they work at overcoming and growing and becoming like Christ. No liar, no thief, no drunk, no adulterer, no fornicator is going to be in the kingdom of God. Let us quit denying and admit whatever problems we may have and overcome them. That's all we have to do. Every one of us here has problems. There is no one here that does not have problems. Am I, am I wrong on that? Somebody, let me see a hand of somebody that doesn't. Because I want us to be able to look to you and say, be like so-and-so. I won't see any hands, because every last one of us has problems. So let's admit it to ourselves. We don't have to go around with our head hanging, shake, shaking our head and hanging it and say, well, you know, i got problems to each other, necessarily. We just need to confess and forsake, God says. Whatever problems we have, confess them before him, forsake them. If you confess and forsake, that means you quit denying it and trying to hide it or find an excuse for it. Confess it before God, forsake it, and everything will be hunky-dory. Fear and obey Him. Got nothing to worry about. We keep on trying to hide from Him, trying to use each other as an excuse for not overcoming, and we're cutting our throat spiritually. You know what happens when you cut your throat? You bleed to death. So be strong, he says, and work, and i am be with you. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, fear you not. Well, we're coming out of Egypt or sin right now. And we made a covenant with God that we would not be like the Egyptians or the Babylonians, and we would come out from that and be different. But he said, my spirit's with you, don't fear. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, yet once it is a little while that I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all peoples and the desire of all nations, their purposes, their desires, their wants, their needs, shall come. Well, but that's actually speaking of Christ there. Christ is the only one that can fulfill the desire of all the nations. They don't even know that they desire him at this point. He's undesirable to them because they have to obey. They have to keep the commandments. They can't lie and cheat and steal and rob and drink and curse and swear and fornicate and adulterate and everything else that people in this world do. They want to do those things. They don't want to admit that they have a problem with those things. They want to live that way. But they also want peace and safety. They want happiness. They don't know how to get those things. And the only way they're going to get them is through God. Because living his way is the only way that produces those things. But we have a world bent on telling us that money and the things money will buy, and sex and so on, will solve all our problems and make us happy and give us everything we want. It's not true. It's not true. Then he says, and this is always a little curious to me in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the eternal of hosts. Now, of course, we talk about how he is refining us, as silver and his gold, and those who become silver and gold instead of lead or tin or dros will certainly be his. But I wonder if there's not also a physical application. The silver and the gold is mine. There is going to be a terrible financial crash, and it says that people will even be throwing their silver and gold in the streets in Zephaniah 1. God says, here, the silver and the gold is mine. Maybe he's going to show the world once and for all that he's the creator, that he made all this, and ultimately it all belongs to him, and it's not going to do them any good. If they don't obey him and there's drought and there's no food, silver and gold won't do them a bit of good. Maybe God will show where the true riches are. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the eternal of hosts. We're not quite there yet because we don't have peace fully yet, do we? I think we're trying to work on that. We're working at it, but we still have our egos and our vanity and our problems that get in the way. And then we become problems to each other, and we point fingers at each other. And in a way, it's a natural thing. You know, we preach very strongly here, and we preach obedience, and we preach the standard of God as opposed to being like the world. And that has to create a certain level of frustration within each one of us to hear those words from time to time. Because we know what we maybe ought to be, and if we're realistic, we know what we be. And there's a vast difference. And it can be discouraging to realize that we have a long way to go between what we are and what we need to be. And if we look at ourselves, it's pretty hopeless, and we can't do it. That's why we have to look to God, because he has the strength and the power and the might and the spirit to help us overcome and grow and do things that we didn't think we could do. You know, I've had things in my past, going back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I didn't think I could overcome. I didn't think there was any prayer that I could get past certain things in my mind and character. But you know, some of those things I can look back now and say, I got that pretty much under control. And I'm not going to tell you what I ain't yet. But I've made some progress in some areas, and so have you. We still have a long way to go. But I'll tell you this, if God had not been there chastening me, and sticking me and jabbing me here and there and showing me and helping me and forgiving me and showing mercy on me, wouldn't have happened. On my own, I wouldn't have made it. I would be someplace else in far worse shape and probably dead today had not some of those changes been made. Guarantee. and let's not be discouraged. And you see, the problem is when the standard keeps being pointed out, it's so easy to fall into saying, well, so-and-so's not perfect, and so-and-so's not, <clears throat> because it takes the heat off of us a little bit, doesn't it? If we can blame them and say, well, they're not perfect either, then we feel a little better about ourselves, but that's the wrong way to get the feeling better. It isn't wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. It's wise to compare ourselves to God and realize how far short we are and then turn to him and ask for his help to become what we need to be. Unless we have our eyes on God instead of on ourselves and those around us, we can't rise above either those around us or ourselves. You must turn to God with your whole heart. That's what he says. He says, when we turn to him with our whole heart, we'll find him. But when we got one foot in the world, or we have some sins or problems that we're denying and hanging on to, rather than admitting to God and really working at overcoming, then we can't rise because we are shutting down and cutting off the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit, as Paul put it. The Spirit of God would like to move through us and help us, to move us upward. But when we quench it, we shut it off because we love certain things or we love certain problems or we want to live a certain way, then there's no hope for growth. You have to confess it, accept it, see it before you can overcome it. We have all kinds of people in this world who are in denial about all kinds of things. No, I'm not fat. No, I'm not broke. You know, they'll put on a facade to show that they're not in poverty. They'll buy things they cannot afford to make it look like they actually have money when they had to go into debt to do it. So they're denying their financial status. They're denying... Their eating problems, their drinking problems, their gambling problems, their drug problems, their sex problems. We have people that are in denial about anything you want to name and don't want to admit it's a problem. God says, fear me and obey me and work. So, hey, we want to be part of what God is doing. Let's be honest with ourselves and honest with him and get to work on it instead of going through life denying that it is even there. I've done it. You've done it. I still do it. You still do it. Ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Ignore it. Maybe I can continue it. Or whatever. Now let's confess and forsake. We deny our vanity, our egos. God's going to shake all nations, but he's going to bring peace to his people, those who will fear and obey him. Well, he goes on down He says, you've got to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. I've already been talking about that before we ever got there, but that's what it all comes down to. You've got to make a difference between that which God wants and how we should be living and how this world is living. This, this is not talking about pigs and cows. Yeah, that was an Old Testament thing, clean and unclean meats, and it still applies because it's there as a principle that we as Christians need to be sorting out clean living from unclean living, good activity from bad activity. And he says, that's what the priests are not doing. They're not making a difference. Now, I am going to make a difference between the two, whether I'm popular or not. That's what God says to do. And I'm not very popular. Do you see hundreds of people here? Do you see thousands, tens of thousands, who just can't wait to tell, Darryl, tell them, have Daryl tell them their sinners need to repent? No, you don't. This is a very unpopular message with most of the church today. And some days it's not all that popular with the few that it's popular with. Thankfully, we're not in a popularity contest. God says very, very few out of probably six and a half billion people on the face of this earth, there will probably only be from seven to 12,000 that God pulls out and protects. That's all. It might be a little more than that, but probably not many. 10% of what was called, basically. Roughly 150,000, by the time it got to its largest, were called. And out of that many, few are being chosen, a little less than 10%. So max, I think we're talking about 15,000, max. In the the stories about Elijah, 7,000 is mentioned, who had not bowed to Baal. Paul recounts that again in the New Testament. That could be very close to the number are protected in this end time. Very, very small group. And I think every one of us here has opportunity to be in that. Every one of us. Be we three years old or a hundred years old. Because we have the knowledge and we know what to do about it. Question is, are we going to do it? We've got to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. And he says those that will do that, then, he's going to bless, he says, from this day forward. And he mentions the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, which comes in December uh, on the Gregorian calendar. So I think that there's going to be a specific blessing that comes some December on God's people. In some ways, maybe we've already seen a minor fulfillment of that. When did we buy this land? December. Right after the 70 years, I think, was complete, which gave us opportunity to get away from the world. And now if we will continue to show that we're willing to, co- to completely separate from it, then God is going to increase those blessings. So we may even be looking at history to some degree on this very prophecy right here. I don't think that's the fullness of it. I think there's a day coming. When it will come in superabundance so that we will, it'll be unbelievable to us. And how much God blesses us. What time is it getting to be? Let's, uh, let's go on a little bit more. Zechariah 1 started in the middle of Haggai. And Zechariah's message starts out and Zechariah, the word means God remembers, Yahweh remembers. God remembers the past. He says here, turn you to me, verse 3, says the eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the eternal of hosts. It's cause and effect again, Zechariah 1, verse 3. And then it says, be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, thus says the eternal of hosts, Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? He said, don't be like those people I sent the prophets to in the past. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, Did they not take hold of your fathers? Did they not come down and recompense your fathers? Didn't what I said by the prophets come to pass? Didn't your fathers go into captivity? Didn't they get killed by the sword and famine and pestilence? Yes, they did. What about the church? On a spiritual level, it has gone through famine, pestilence, disease, death come apart. My father was part of Worldwide. He was an honest, upstanding man, had his problems and his weaknesses, but I think he was obedient to God overall. He didn't understand everything we do today. And he didn't do everything we're called upon to do today. Herbert Armstrong has told us to get back on the track, not to look and act like the world. He said, there will be makeup in this church over my dead body, was his last pronouncement on that. And it's creeping back into the church everywhere. To look like the world. God's apostle was very adamant about that. Now, should we be less adamant today? Should we be more accepting? He was a prophet of God. A lot of people ignored him. Didn't they? Are we to listen less now than we did to him? Or more? We have to surpass what we were in worldwide. We can't walk backward, brethren. We have to get better spiritually. We'd better be listening more now than we did then. You put up with preachers back then. Might have thought you had to. Now there are people saying, well, we don't need preachers anymore. And they quote Colossians, written by a preacher to say we don't need preachers. Duh. Go back to Nehemiah. It says they came together and read the words of God. And they stood up on an altar above the people made of wood so people could hear and see better. They stood above the people. Oh, my, 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 my. And they not only read the word of God... They made the sense of it. That is, they expounded it. They talked about it. They made it clearer. They preached. I better not get sidetracked there. I'll go through a thousand scriptures. God's going to send what? The end time. Two preachers to lead the rest. And he's going to have other men there as well, Micah 5. Principal men, set aside to teach and preach. There's going to be a high priest of all things, Zechariah 3. And the Melchizedek priesthood. Priesters and preachers, same thing. But oh, how we like to deny because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. Didn't Haggai tell them what to do? Didn't Zechariah tell them what to do? Didn't Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel tell them what to do? Didn't Peter, James, John, Paul, Stephen tell them what to do? Yes, they did. Is God the same yesterday and forever? Yes, He is. Will He ever change that? No, He won't. He says in the end time you'll see your teachers and not only will you see them, they're going to walk up and tap you on the shoulder and say, "Uh uh-uh, don't go that way, go this way. That's in the end time before the millennium. And it will also be the case during the millennium. So pack up your attitude and flush it down the toilet where it belongs. Can I get any clearer than that? Well, probably, but we don't need to. You know, I go home, too, and say, I sure hope Daryl lives up to that sermon. I sure wish I'd have put that a little differently. I sure wish this, and I sure wish that. Sometimes I get discouraged and frustrated with myself. I look at my own self and, say, oh, man, how are you ever going to make it? And I think it through, and I say only through Christ who can make this wretched man be what he ought to be. And I know in him it can be done. That's the only way I can pick myself up and bring myself here and say the things I'm saying to you today. Is by falling on my face and saying, God in heaven, I don't deserve to go speak. I don't know what to say. I'm weak. I'm wretched. I'm human. I'm full of vanity and ego and selfishness and greed and lust and covetousness and what are all some of that other stuff that doesn't come to mind. Got all that stuff. How can I go talk? And I say, forgive me through my high priest and elder brother and soon coming king and ruler and make me clean before you and give me words to say. And the only reason I can tell you what's wrong with your attitudes and what's wrong with your thinking is because I know What's wrong with them? Been there, done that. The things I preach, the loudest I preach from experience. I doubt there's anybody here that's done anything any worse than I have. Okay? I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to us the words of God. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of my sins for the last many decades. I don't expect you to give me a list of yours. But I expect you to go before God honestly, in the light of his word, and confess them to him and forsake them. And not look like the world or sound like the world. He's going to show mercies after 70 years. And his house will be built, he says in Zechariah 1, verse 16, after 70 years of being captive in Babylon. He gave us this land shortly after, I believe, that 70 years ended. And he gave us an opportunity, a golden, wonderful opportunity to go away from this world and live out in what some people have described as this hellhole that we live in. Actually, I talked to somebody the other day who said she wanted to keep development out because this is such a beautiful area. An attorney. Oh, it's beautiful here. I want to keep it this way. And if you look around, these red cliffs are beautiful. They really are. This isn't that ugly a place. Just between here and St. George, you can look over and see Mount Zion, the joy of all the land. Within an hour, I can be up in the pine trees in some of the most beautiful places God has made. Where the deer and the elk, well, not the antelope, but the squirrels play. Antelope are on the flat. It's not that ugly around here. Ugly is attitude more than anything else. It's because we've chosen to believe that we don't like something, and therefore it's ugly to us. And yet I talked to somebody on the phone that just voluntarily said, oh, this is beautiful here. I came here four years ago from California, I think it was. It's got to be beautiful by comparison. Happiness is a state of mind, not a state of the union. We can either choose to be unhappy wherever we are, or be happy wherever we are, to be content wherever we are. Not chafing to be somewhere else. You know what I've found? I found that whether it was me or someone else, any time they ran from their problems and thought the grass was greener somewhere else, their problems always went with them. And it was only a matter of time until they caught up. I mean, you might drive fast enough, and if you drive all night, you might get away from them for a month or two, but they're all going to come right on back. It's like they're on an elastic band. They'll catch up with you. You have to change certain things or life will never be different. Attitudes have to change. Emotions have to change. We have to change. If you're longing for something else, you'll never be happy with what you have. That is a law about covetousness, because covetousness creates unhappiness and unease and frustration. Anytime you're desiring something you should not or cannot have, it just frustrates you, is what it does. So, what do you have to do? Repent, change the attitude, and be thankful for what you have. Whatever state you find yourself in, therein be content. Paul says. That's the Apostle Paul, not Paul Miller or Paul Clark. That's the Apostle Paul that says that. Now, the other Pauls may too, if they agree with the Apostle Paul, but That's really what it all comes down to, isn't it? You are what you are. Until you change what you are, where you go will make no difference in the long run. Now, I'm still not going to get where we're headed. But he says the church has to be measured and that Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls in Zechariah 2. For the multitude of men and cattle, and God is going to be a wall of fire and the glory in the midst of her. It says, flee from the Babylonian land to the north. To the north is always considered Babylon. And we were in northern Babylon right now. There's a new Babylon coming after this one is destroyed. And he says, to deliver yourself, verse 7, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon, God puts it upon us to bring ourselves out of this world and this way of thinking and living and acting. And literally, physically, to remove ourselves from it. So he puts that on us. And then he says, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. He's going for those people who are willing to do that. He says, they're the apple of my eye. They're the ones that I keep looking at. Now if you have an apple tree out here and you've been watching these apples grow and you have an apple of your eye, you've been watching one on that tree this whole time waiting for it to get ripe. And it's a little bigger and looks a little better and it has more red streak on it where it's beginning to ripen than the others do. So every day when you go out, you make sure that one hasn't fallen off the tree, a bird hasn't pecked holes in it or whatever might have come of it. Because that's the one that you want to pick first, the first fruit. Now, when God sees his first fruits, those who are willing to obey him and fear him and come out from this world and build his temple the way he wants it built, he says, they are the apple of his eye. Every day he checks you and me if we're in that group of people to see if we're ripening, to see if we've been hurt, To see if anything is about to peck us and stop it, God is going to take care of us because we have become the apple of his eye. Which apple do you want to be? An apple that the world picks because it looks good to them and you're one of them? Or do you want to be the apple that God has his eye on because he sees his reflection? You know, an apple peel is bright and shiny. Can God see his reflection in you? Is that an apple he would look at and say, boy, that's a beautiful apple. It looks a lot like what I like. You can't look like the world and like God at the same time. You just can't do it. You can't act like the world and act like God at the same time. They're totally opposite poles. Are you going to go to the movies and watch murder, fornication, and adultery? Then you look like the world. You're thinking like the world and acting like the world. Are you going to turn on your television and watch adultery and fornication and lying and cheating and stealing and sin? Then you're thinking like the world. Will we make the difference? Will we make the changes? You know, I discovered that on a television, that same button, I think on most of them now it says power. If you punch it once, it comes on. Everybody's learned that, you know. If you punch it, it'll come on. I learned something vital. If you punch it again, it'll go off. It actually works. Try it. You punch it again, it'll go off. But you have to punch it. I found myself one night several years ago in a motel room by myself. So I'm sitting here surfing around, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80 channels, trying to find something worth watching. I give it about half a second each before I would hit it again. You know, you can sit there and surf looking for something to watch for a long time. And that's when I discovered, you know, I can do something about this. Instead of punching this next channel button, I could hit the off button, and the world would go quiet and black, and I could go to sleep. Amazing. I'm so simple. It took me a while to figure that out. That doesn't mean that even though I finally got that figured out, that I don't have to be careful when to punch it on and when to punch it off. How much are we willing to compromise, brethren? God says, fear me, separate, get away from, don't think like them, think like me. You know, I'm really sorry if you listen to this today and you go home saying, man, hope he shuts up soon. Otherwise, I might have to really actually do something about this. Do we resent it and hope we just finally shut up so we can go on living our lives? Or do we take the words of God, and that's what I'm reading here to you, is the words of God. Make a separation between the unclean. Do we know the difference? Is lying and cheating and stealing and fornicating and drunkenness and debauchery and drugs... Clean or unclean. God says to separate between the two. Now we're either adult or non-adult here. If we can read, we can read these words of God. If we can hear, we can hear right here. God, God means us for to actually do something, brethren. He doesn't mean to come here and get castigated and chastised and then go out muttering, why don't you just get off of that? He's got problems too. Well, we've already covered that. Yes, I do. Sorry about that. I do. I'm not as Christ-like by any means as I ought to be. I'm working on it day by day just like you are. And I have a long way to go. But don't use me for an excuse or you'll have lots of excuses. And you can run me down, but you won't get any better than I am because that's the level at which you said that's good enough. You better look to God and see what standard He wants. If you don't get better than Gordon and Nelson, I don't have much hope for you. Or Daryl. Okay, you're adults, you have God's spirit, are we going to do something about it or just harden our hearts, stiffen our necks, preachers meddling again, or do we want to do something about it? I'll tell you, when I look at everything that's coming in this world, I want protection from it. I want to be part of it. God has told me if I'll be different, I won't look and act and smell like the world, but he will protect me. So it does come down to that. But that's not what we're here for. If we do what God wants done, we will ensure a place. He wants his temple built. I'm going to stop right there. I don't have time to go further with this. But we'll get into some interesting things, I think, next week. But, you know, it doesn't do any good to know what God is going to do and how He's going to do it and who He's going to use if we don't do those things necessary to become a part of it. If we'll do that, then everything's going to be hunky-dory. So I think it's important we consider these scriptures again in Haggai to consider our ways and think it through and then be a part of what God is going to do.